So, you know, when those episodes of my podcast air and it's me and another guest and we're just like flowing and vibing and chatting and you're like, don't know if you're having breakfast or listening to a podcast. (laughs) You love those episodes, right? I know I do. But I interviewed Dr. Dr. See, we would have said that on the podcast. Dr. Sasha Hines. And she is a developmental psychologist and life coach and is an expert in positive psychology. And as many of you know, I'm a bit of an armchair psychologist. (laughs) I love psychology. And she was so much fun. And we had so much in common um, just from a childhood experience and, and even our adult lives. So we talked a lot about mindset and changing your life and, and how to make changes that you want and kind of her battle with an eating disorder and perfectionism and all of that. And of course, I had a lot to say <laughs> about all of the above. But you guys are going to love Sasha. She was um, just very candid, very open and everything you would want in a leader in psychology and someone to coach you through your next big mental hurdle is what I feel like she would do best. But enjoy this episode. Follow her on Instagram and everywhere. I'll post the links and she will be back for sure. Welcome to the same 24 hours podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day. And it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Dr. Sasha Hines. Hello. Hi. Welcome. So happy to be here. So where are you located? Are you in New York? Um, no, I used to live in New York and then we moved to Pittsburgh and then we took a family sabbatical in Sun Valley, Idaho. It's a very cool ski town in Idaho and we haven't left yet. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how far is that from say Coeur d'Alene? Um, it's pretty far. It's like sort of the, uh, Coeur d'Alene is fairly North in the state Mm -hmm. and we're sort of middle of the state. Yeah. Further south, yeah. Yeah, I did um, my first Ironman in Coeur d'Alene, so it has a nice little special place in my heart. Oh my gosh, it's a beautiful place there. I mean, it's really, it's just, I think Idaho is the gem. It is, <laughs> it is, I, it's a little like a secret gem. Yeah. You don't really talk about it. Yeah. I like well, the fact that not that many people are here. Well, we just recently moved to Kansas just for a few months. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but I feel that way about Overland Park, Kansas. Everyone's like, Kansas. And I'm like, yes, I love it here. I mean, it's just, it's funny where you end up and you think, I never thought I'd end up here, but it's cool. Oh my gosh. Never in a million years. I, although I like I really I grew up skiing a lot as a kid with my I never I didn't ever go to the beach. I don't know why my fa- parents just that's where we'd go on vacation. We'd always go to the mountains. And I love I grew up skiing in Colorado and I loved the mountain life and it's just a really I, I don't know. I mean, I just who I am. Maybe it's the Capricorn in me. I just love them. <laughs> I, I know it seems so weird, but you just have this expansive feeling always like when you're just surrounded by these enormous mountains. Yeah. See, that's me in the ocean. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good segue into talking about you. You said, I mean, vacationing in the mountains, that can't be all that bad. I mean, you had everything 
you could have wanted to quote unquote be happy, mm-hmm. but yet there was still a struggle. So let's talk a little bit about kind of where you came from and what led you down the path of positive psychology. I grew, I, I feel like I was the person who was like, I had a great, I had like the hashtag perfect hashtag blessed life. <laughs> Nothing should have been wrong, you know? Um, and yet I was just not happy and dysfunctional and had a terrible eating disorder and was a mess really. Um, and, and, and really which started sort of in late in the end, toward the end of high school, all through college. Yeah. 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 And then by the time I got to college, it was like just full blown insanity. Um, and it made no sense. Do you, do you remember what I mean, there's so many things, um, you know, there's so many things that I think lead to, first of all, girls in general tend to internalize more than externalize their problems. So, you know, where you'd see guys might get into trouble with drinking and, um, drug abuse, like in those early years, I'm not saying that women don't drink. They definitely do. I think they do it in a more quieter way to begin with, Mm -hmm. but, um, I think women in general are have a higher propensity to have in what we call internalizing issues. So, um, you know, women are more likely to have eating disorders. Women are more likely to cut um, than they are to be, you know, going to rehab in high school. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know, it was like a, it was the perfect cocktail of like pressure, um, high expectations. Um, a culture, and I 100% don't blame my parents, but I think at this, you know, culture in that time, which was more, I guess, just, it was just the culture. It was just the way it was. It was like, I it had a lot of like, you know, I used to totally understand why I took it out of myself. Well, I think it's so interesting because it sounds like you and I have similar kind of issues and, and expectations kind of drove, you know, my childhood as well. And when I look back and kind of was in the middle of it, same thing, like hashtag bless, what do I have to complain about? But there was a lot of underlying dark problems that mm-hmm. the culture and the time didn't talk about. I mean, no talking, exa- no talking and no, and it was be quiet and stop having a bad attitude. And like, there was just no room for your emotions or your feelings. And um, mine was very much around my weight as well. I mean, my parents didn't know any better, but I got put on a diet at 11. My daughter is 10 and a half, and I can't even imagine that. <laughs> like, I can't. Right. I know everything is really, everything is so much more shocking when you have your own children and you look at them at their ages and you think, oh my God. I was that, I was your age. Yeah. Like you're a baby. You're a baby. You're a baby. And yeah, exactly. So, okay. Yeah. And the expectations were high and, um, there was no room for opinions and, and that kind of thing. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm feeling you. Yeah. And I don't even think like, you know, I, I, I absolutely adore my parents. I don't think that they intend, they had any intention to sort of put pressure on me, but I mean, I, my mom does, she's so funny. She's like, I never said this. I'm like, yes, you did. You hundred percent said it to me. I had a best friend when I was in fifth grade and, um, she, her father had gone to UPenn, which turned out like ultimately to be where I went to my, get my master's degree. So it's now my alma mater. And, um, anyhow, so she was wearing a UPenn sweatshirt and I remember asking my mom, both my parents went to Harvard. So <laughs> that was just like the, 
you know, that was just the environment. But um, yeah. so I asked my mom, like, mom, what's UPenn? And she said, oh, it's a, it's a college in, you know, in Philadelphia. And I said, well, is it a good school? And she said, it's okay. <laughs> I'm like, I look back on it, I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? It's like one of the best, <laughs> it's like one of the most elite schools in the world. Yeah, but double like, Harvard's, I, I mean, rough. that's rough. <laughs> So when you go into the college admissions process with, you know, thinking it completely irrationally that UPenn is a second tier school, like, you, you got problems. <laughs> I mean, I was, I'm so grateful. My parents were both, um, I don't want to say blue collar, but they, they never quite made it through the college deal. And my pressure was the fear pressure. They didn't want me to not get to college. You know what I mean? So <laughs> they pushed me in, in that direction, but I can't imagine the cocktail if my parents had been Harvard <laughs> graduates. <laughs> oh my goodness. So you took I know my mom that. was like totally, my mom was, you know, Allie McGraw. She went in the sixties. She's super beautiful. And I, I just, I mean, I just had these like I just imagine like my mom at Radcliffe and meeting my dad. And in my mind, you know, I was like, I had, I, I mean, it was Harvard or bust. Like I wasn't right. going anywhere. I, I told my college advisor when he asked me, you know, where are you going to apply? I said, well, I'm applying to Harvard early. And if I don't get in, I'm going to take you off and reapply. He's like, okay. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> this is what I'm doing. And and then, of course, I get there, and it was not love story at all. But, but you did go to Harvard. <laughs> I did go to Harvard. <laughs> check the box. Check yes, the box. I did check that box. Okay, so um, what did – what did you said it did not go as you planned. No, no. It was a total, like, you know, total face plant. Um, and I, I, I don't even – I didn't really enjoy it. And I go back now and visit, and I think, oh, my gosh, I was so lucky to go to the school school and yeah. Cambridge is incredible and what a fun place to be you know it's this it's just one of the coolest college towns in America it really is and I was a mess I mean I literally look back on my college years I'm like okay I was one of the greatest places on earth and 90% of my day was obsessing about my what I ate and how much I weighed I mean what a waste yeah I feel that way like every day. <laughs> I'm like, oh the my gosh. The space in my head that is taken up with my belly mm -hmm. is ridiculous. Oh, for so many women. I mean, that to me is like the revolution. It's like if we could just free up all of that. And that's what I would say. I mean, it's really how I would define what an eating disorder is. Like, I don't judge what anybody eats. I, I mean, what people need for their own bodies and their own metabolism and whatever and what their preferences are. Like, I, how can I judge that? It's impossible. But what I do know is you have an eating disorder if you are spending an inordinate amount of time during the day obsessing about what you eat and how much your body, you know, how, what your weight is, how you fit in clothes, all of that. Like if that's what you're thinking about all day long and you're, it's, that's like, that's when it gets to that place of, you know, disorder. And that's the freedom. It's like the freedom is to be able to not really spend, I mean, we all have to think about food. We need food to survive, but that you're not thinking about it all the time. There is space in your day for learning and conversations <laughs> with other people. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's really the truth. Like people really do. It's too many women spend that kind of time 
thinking about it. Yeah, I've got my hand raised. But I feel like I've kind <laughs> of swung wi- wildly from one eating disorder to another. I mean, I consider yeah. myself healthy disordered eating right now because I count everything and log it and it makes me feel good. Like, <laughs> but it Yeah, does, but honestly, you know? well, but here's the where I've come to now is that I think if just in the same way as, you know, keeping track of things kind of in some like for example, if you have like to-do list, right? Getting it out of your brain and onto paper sometimes actually minimizes the chatter in your head. Yeah, it does. And also I've found that planning everything that's going to go into my mouth in the morning, it, it, it sounds psychotic, but I log it before I eat it. And then like when I'm hungry, I'm like, oh, what do I eat meal three? You know, I just go look at it and then I go put that in my face and then I'm done with it. So it's kind of almost freeing in that regard that it's kind totally. of taking up less space. Well, it still it, I mean, erotic. No, no. I, I mean, I disagree because I think that, um, I mean, I was, I, <laughs> I was a bulimic. Was a, I was failed anorexic. Um, me too. I couldn't be yeah. anorexic. Isn't that terrible <laughs> that we even say that? Well, I mean, I, I, I tried, I tried, I was too I tried hungry. too. I tried too, <laughs> but it really was like, I, it was, it didn't have the effect that I, you know, like it was, it was too obvious. Like it was too much attention. People were commenting about it all the time. It was like not working for me, right? But I, the bulimia really was like the addiction that just totally took over. And it's so full of shame. Like I'm so, it's so great now that I can sit here and talk about it without it being such a big deal. Yeah. Well, but, that's me and alcohol because I'm a former drunk. Like I'm three and a half years sober. So I can talk about alcohol like that too. See, I'm a real mess. I, <laughs> eating disorder, alcoholism. Oh my God. Uh, no way. I mean, yeah. I think we, if you, it's, by the way, one of the great things about my job is that I get to have a little like peek into everybody's brain. Yes. So messy. See, I'm an armchair psychologist. I don't have any of the cloud, <laughs> but I like to peek in everyone's brains. Oh, but you know, the first step, by the way, with recovery from bulimia, the first process that I went through was joining um, Overeaters Anonymous. I worked with a coach. This is how I became a coach. How is that? For everyone now, Tom, out there. Let's, this is great because I definitely want to yeah. get to the whole point of us talking <laughs> instead of like, you know, we're just hanging out as friends. But this is fun too. But so tell me about Overeaters Anonymous because I've heard, I feel like that's even more secret than Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, yeah. By the way, I mean, let's be honest. When you're 24, I started OA when I was probably 23. When you're 23, it's like not that cool. You're like, yeah, I go to 12-step meetings for binge eating. <laughs> right. Like I put my head in the toilet. Like that's not awesome. Yeah. So that was about you know, the age at least... I was when I went to AA for the first time. And that wasn't cool either, being there with like the 65-year-old overly tanned smokers. But, you know, right. yeah. But at least with alcohol, I could be wrong. But at least with alcohol, you can be like, oh, my war stories and – you know, it's there's like a mystique and like a cool factor when you're in your 20s to being someone who partied. Yeah, but yeah. bulimia, it's like, yikes, let's not talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, it's like shrouded in shame and secrecy. And I would leave work and go to meetings every day. And I so I worked with this coach, which is like what started this whole process for me because I loved I mean, I, I remember saying to her, I'm like, I'll never be normal again. This is my cross to bear. Like, I, I'm going to be obsessed all day long thinking about food, you know, obsessing about my body. It's never, it's like the constant rumination. I can't even participate in like, you know, thoughtful conversation because my brain is so preoccupied and that's just the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life. 
Mm-hmm. And I just was resigned to that. And um, she had reco- she had had long term recovery from bulimia, which I think is important that people talk about long term recovery from bulimia because there's a very few people that are willing to talk about it. Really? So. Um, you'll hear people saying like, Oh, I'm 25 years sober. And not like someone's like 20 years bulimia free. Woo! <laughs> it's true. Right. Yeah. So I just think it's important that people are more open about okay, it. And but she... is that because people, is it harder to recover from bulimia? Like are there fewer long-term recovering bulimics? Than maybe. Alcoholics? Yeah. Maybe. Cause it's so, you know, quiet and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, I don't know either. I don't know whether it's like the shame piece of it or whether there is more of um, a relapse yeah, or, yeah. yeah. But I thank goodness that she did. And she was, she wrote a book about it. It was called My Name is Caroline. And she wrote about her bulimia recovery. And she'd had a very, you know, similar life to me. She'd gone to, um, she was a swimmer. She was an athlete. She went to Harvard um, so that I really related to and her, you know, she's in our first meeting, she was like, here's what you're going to do. And I expect you to do it. And it was the first time I had not worked with a therapist, but worked with a coach. And as someone who had been an athlete, having someone say to me, here's what you're going to do. I want you to show up and do it. I was like, okay, yes, ma'am. Like I understood that dynamic of that relationship of like, of someone you know, pushing me lovingly to be better, to improve, you know, right. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't feel so loving, right. but I, I got that. And it was the first time that I wasn't sitting in a chair and having someone say like, you know, asking me why and where these patterns developed and, you know, how I became, you know, where the eating disorder began and, what blah all of that because which that's is more important. of like what the cognitive psychology track i mean the well there's the past yeah i mean i think cognitive in general cognitive behavioral therapy is more um interested in your current thinking so where are the you know the where's the irrational thinking now that's creating the behavior that's dysfunctional or the behavior that's not serving you very well um, psychodynamic therapy in tends to be, they look more looking at, you know, family dynamics and family of origin and, you know, how these various patterns developed and, um, you know, messages that you got when you were younger and the way that the relationships developed between family members, et cetera. And that's what they're kind of dissecting and pulling apart. And I, for me, and this isn't for everybody, but for me, the why of it was less important than like, I just needed to have a day where I was functional. Yeah. That's so true. I don't really, I, it's not that I ever want to stick my head in the sand about the past, but I kind of feel that way too. I don't need to take a trip through the past to figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing. I just need to get a hold of what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. And then the, this funny thing happens, which is like once you start to get your – once your daily life becomes more manageable, like more functional, which is OA was and, – and this coach was like, you, you got to go to OA. And so I did. And that having that daily community of people that were going through the same thing, there was – you know, everybody's talking about having their head in the toilet. So uh-huh. the shame factor about that wasn't such a big deal anymore. And all of a sudden you're laughing about something that, 
you know, you were crying about and now it seems kind of funny and, and all of that's so healing. And slowly my life became a lot more functional. And once I got to that point, it was so much easier for me to be, you know, generous and about things that had happened in the past. Like I wasn't so resentful and I wasn't so angry. And I saw somewhere, I think it was on your website, you said that traditional therapy had somehow kept you stuck in your story. Yeah, because I kept ruminating over, well, my mom said this to me when I was 13. And then when I was 15, you know, she patted me on the butt in a specific way that really made me feel bad. I mean, it was like, how is that helping me? It's not. My mom was coming always from, I mean, she's got her own stuff. Right. Right. She's a human being having a human experience, which means she has her own wounds and her own biases and perspectives and whatever. And my mom was trying to be a loving mother. She wasn't trying to hurt me. They just didn't talk about it, though. I mean, I think that's Mm -mm. the the bridge and the generations now is my I think I at least try to let my kids know those things about me, maybe not the deep, dark, ugly, but that I do have issues. And I don't know if that's going to make it worse or better. But sometimes I just remember feeling completely alone in my childhood and my teenage years with my parents not talking to me about their feelings about things, you know, like I never, oh, I still yeah. to this day don't know how my mom feels about her body image. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, I was raised by two parents of the fifties and my mom would be a better Victorian. So. <laughs> my husband always says I would be a better Victorian. Bring me cake. I'm big and I have a big dress. <laughs> I'm like, sounds fine to me. (laughs) So I don't know. I just think that, you know, I mean, I think as you get your feet, there's a certain point where you just need to get your kind of feet on terra firma. And then once you get that point where you're feeling, you know, where you are, I mean, honestly, like just coping as an adult in the world, it's so much easier than to spend time looking at, okay, how did these patterns develop? Where did I learn this idea? You know, how did I internalize, you know, my mom is like such an iron will. And I remember in high school, I had broken my back and for the first time in my life, I'd gained weight. And I came home from summer travel and, and said, you know, I was like, mom, I just went to my annual physical and my, you know, all of a sudden I'd gained all this weight and my mother, God bless her. She's like, Oh, you want to lose weight? I'll help you do that. And my mom's (laughs) approach to it was like, just have half an apple for lunch. You know, like she was just so austere and she doesn't mean, she didn't mean to be so hardcore. She just is hardcore. Right. Right. So, you know, from my 17 year old brain, I was internalizing that as she doesn't think I'm good enough and she doesn't, right? It had nothing to do with that. And that's not what she meant. She was just trying to be helpful. And then, you know, once you start dieting at that age, I know that you, um, you know, brain over binge and you interviewed her, but, you know, once you start the research on like, once you start dieting at that young age, you know, there's a whole biological process that kind of kicks into gear. Right. So you kind of set in motion the binge, you know, the starve binge cycle 
that becomes so dysfunctional when you start dieting at such a young age. Right. And for me, it was 10. And so I was talking yeah. to Lauren Zander. I've talked to her twice on the podcast, but she's, she's hilarious. She's by the way. So in your face and she's yeah. like, well, you're very immature with your relationship with your parents and with food. And I said, well, yeah, I think that's when it stopped. It was like right. age 10. I am frozen. I'm almost 40 and I am age 10. <laughs> Just frozen right, right. in time. Right. Exactly. But we are never like taught to manage. We're never taught to manage our minds. That's one of the things I, you say. Oh my gosh. Um, we, we Not at all. Learn how to do that. Mm-mm. And no, so how did that change kind of your path? When did you realize? Well, so, I mean, I first, what happened is that, you know, so I, I went through this, I mean, really I went through the 12 step process. I worked with a coach and my life was radically changed. I mean, I stopped throwing up. I stopped binging. I mean, which was by the way, a miracle. I mean, truly thought I would never be able to do it. And I never thought I would be, I I never thought I would have a day where I wasn't like white knuckling that. And so just that alone was just such a mind blowing experience that I could, that that was possible. Um, and I loved the process and the approach of thinking about like, wait a minute, I can create my life. I can have, you know, really set goals and go after them. And that became so, so fun. I started a goal setting group in my early twenties. Like I was that girl. So fun. Um, (laughs) and then just by total luck, um, Marty Seligman at Penn started a master's program in positive psychology and I didn't, he didn't require the GRE. I don't know what the, what it's the deal is now, but anyway, if you'd been working for three years or something like that, you could apply without taking the GRE. So, which seemed like, you know, a no brainer, just apply, see how it goes. And, um, you know, I didn't tell anyone cause I told everybody I was never going back to school. And then, um, and then I got in and decided to go, which to- just changed everything. So that it was this idea that I could do because once you, once you start going through any kind of addiction recovery, you kind of get obsessed with understanding why your brain operates the way it does. Right. Right. It's, it's almost impossible. It's a new addiction not- trying to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're like, how did I get here? Let's figure this out. So then I became really interested in that. Um, and, and I loved this approach to psychology, which was, I don't have to roll around in my story. I don't have to roll around and like all the negative stuff and the muck, you know, like that's not what's going to get me where I want to get. Yeah. Right. Like you don't need to roll around in the muck to get clean. <laughs> and, and that idea was like, yes, this really makes sense to me. Cause I read his book, authentic happiness. And I thought, Oh, this is, this is new. No one ever told me that we could, you know, cultivate great, more well-being, that we could be happier, that we could thrive. Like what? (laughs) This is so fascinating. It seems so laughable now, like knowing all you know, and and all the self-help I read, Mm -hmm. it seems crazy that like a light bulb came on in us. Yes. (laughs) By the way, I know. You cultivate this? Right. It was 2005. And, but I mean, he was really addressing a real issue in psych in the the field of psychology, which is that we, it'd been completely the, the dominant approach was one of, you know, like the medical model, it was you're sick. We're going to make you okay. Help. Like we're going to, you're sick. We're going to make you not sick. Right. 
But anyone who's an athlete or anyone who's like trying to optimize their health knows that not being sick is very different than being, you know, an athlete and being an elite athlete or, you know, whatever, right? Optimally is different than just, yes. Yeah. Optimal human functioning is not, not sick. The science of getting unstuck. Yeah. I love that. So then website. Yeah. So then I went to Penn and it was like, from there I got really, you know, then it changed my life. I loved it. It was the most fun academic year of my life. Is it because it was just an okay school? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that second, it was a second tier school. So I had to feel bad about that all year. It was so fantastic. And I, it It was just a secret rebellion. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but you know what, by that point I had had such like, it was my college, Honestly, my college graduation, because I'd taken a semester off. And by the way, I told everybody that I was taking a semester off to like do some amazing documentary film opportunity, but I wasn't. I was taking a semester off to go see therapists because I was such a mess. And But I had to make it sound good. So I graduated from college. I was a super senior, which means like but I graduated. Wait a Didn't they ask about the documentary? <laughs> you were done. Well, I, I, I was working on a documentary. Okay. I just was not the real reason why I was taking the semester out. Like I made it sound like, oh, it was just something I couldn't pass up, but kind of (laughs) that wasn't really why. So I graduated as a super senior, which means I I had an extra semester. So I graduated mid-year in January. And um, (laughs) my graduation was like, it was maybe one of the most depressing days. I mean, it was in this ugly library in like a fluorescent lighted room with salami, salami pucks and cheese cubes and diet Coke, like literally liters of diet Coke at my Harvard graduation. So when I graduated from Penn with like all the pomp and circumstance, I think by that point, my parents are pretty stoked about that. (laughs) (laughs) Man. So you got the salami at Harvard. Yeah. That's a bummer. <laughs> I'd be so pissed. Well, I walked you write in the a strongly worded email. <laughs> exactly. It was unacceptable. Um, but uh, yeah, I walked in my normal, in the regular like graduation with my class, but I still had one more semester to finish. Okay. But it was, yeah, it was just a complete, you know, and I had so much shame and I felt so bad about it. Now I think it's all so funny, but it just really wasn't funny back then. It was, right. I just, I was just a failure. Hmm. That's you know, it was just a failure. Yeah. Wow. But it changed the whole process, really. I mean, I look back and I think, you know, we're human beings are amazing at one of our great strengths is that we can construct a narrative. In, in hindsight, we can look back on our life and construct a very coherent narrative. By the way, that's a good, healthy psychological tool that we construct a narrative that makes sense. And so I look back and I think, yeah, like all of this happened to get me where I am now, right? To do the work I do now, I would never have been on that path if, if all of that hadn't been so painful and I hadn't felt like such a loser and, um, you know, and felt like I'd squandered such an incredible opportunity, all of that. I felt so, it was demoralizing and, um, you know, humiliating to me at the time but then figuring it out and, and crawling out of that pit for me uh, set me on a completely different course in my life. 
and and let's it's talk about before yeah. you before you let's before we get into that um let's this kind of brings up the topic of suffering mm-hmm. for me like i i love to talk about suffering because mm-hmm. you know you hear your story and then i i've told mine enough and anyone who's had like you know quote unquote really hard life would look at us and roll their eyes right? oh totally yeah. and so but i try and explain that suffering it doesn't matter you can't compare suffering like if you're suffering you are suffering and it doesn't matter yep. if joe next door has it worse or if you should be happy i mean just because you have a certain life that someone else wants doesn't mean it's the one that you really want um and so kind of where do you fall now especially um since you've done so much work in psychology where yeah. do you fall on the topic of suffering well, my my father, who's not a psychologist at all, but he had a saying that I think I didn't understand the brilliance of it until now. But um, you know, he always used to say, "Suffering is a hundred percent," and he's right. It's like it, you cannot compare someone else's suffering to yours. Right. Anyone who's suffering, it's a hundred percent to them. Yeah. Right. And. Um, and the reason that people suffer, the reason we all suffer is because of our thinking. All of our thinking creates our emotions. And we, the, um, the suffering is in the emotion, the feeling. And that's all created in our thoughts. So, yeah, objectively, people can have lives that people would look at. I mean, objectively, I'm at Harvard. Objectively, my life is amazing. I did not feel amazing. I mean, I was, I felt terrible, right? And it's like why everyone goes, just is shocked when Kate Spade kills herself. Right. Like, how, wait, what? Doesn't make any sense. She's objectively has an incredible life. Right, right behind her. Oh, yeah. And Anthony Bourdain, like the summer that that happened, right? Everyone was just like rocked our world because you have two people who have objectively succeeded and not just succeeded, but succeeded doing things ostensibly that were their calling and that they were, they carved out this authentic, amazing life. And it seemed very, um, right. It's like everything the world tells you is going to make you happy. And there's two people who are, you know, sitting on the mountaintop suffering. I mean, I still think of that. I mean, I remember hearing Kate Spade. I was up in my bedroom and that was like, what? And then I was driving to the gym when I heard Anthony Bourdain. And he has been on our television like nonstop since his first episode. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband watches it nonstop. And when I heard that, I mean, I I had a suicide attempt when I was 21. And I am so grateful I did not succeed, you know. And mm-hmm. But after I heard those two back to back. That was the first time I actually told my story um, on my blog about it because I had I had told everything around that incident because I've I'm pretty much been an open book. But when that happened, I thought I have to tell my story just in case someone else is going to like be the third. <laughs> yeah, I was just like I can't take this anymore because you're so right. I mean, you look at those two individuals and and you think there's just it's inexplicable. Right. How ba- it doesn't, and, and I always think it's inexplicable how bad they had to be suffering to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's impossible. 
you know, it's, you just can't ever judge what someone's inner experience is. And I think on what happens for a lot of people who do have, you know, the, the hashtag blessed life, they feel like they don't have permission to suffer that because their life, ex- their externals look so good that that's not, they don't have, they're not allowed to, they shouldn't be right. So now they, they're suffering for whatever reasons they're suffering they're now shame about that, right? Like I shouldn't, right. this is, something's wrong with me. I shouldn't feel this way. I should be grateful. I should be the, and just, you know, it's like, it just piles it on. It's just compounds it. Yeah. yeah. So, so when did you decide to really throw your hat in the ring to help people? Um, I knew I wanted to do this work in right in my early twenties, like when the, when I started working with a coach immediately, I knew that's really what I wanted to do. I, I didn't, you know, back then it seems so crazy because it, it was 2004 coaching was very new. Um, it was not the profession that I was going to come home being like, guys, guess what? <laughs> I am going to be a life coach, you know? Um, so and your parents were... just fall over dead when you tell right. them that. Right. Like, say what? <laughs> um, yeah. But I, um, so then I, you know, and then I wanted to go, I, I, after I graduated from Penn and I wanted to get a doctorate, that was important to me. But one of the things that happened at Columbia, when I went to get my doctorate, was I had just been in this program. Now, the was first Columbia, okay, according- <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you have got like the holy trifecta of degrees, young lady. <laughs> right. I mean, I was, you know, I was pressure. No, I mean, I like I had these these ideas about the way it was supposed to be, but um, Columbia just got so lucky because there was a few great professors at Columbia, and I was living in New York, so. It was a great fit. But when I got to Columbia, I had just finished a pen and I was one of the first 33 people in the world to get a degree in positive psychology. It was that new. There were no doctoral programs in positive psychology yet. They didn't exist yet. And so I got my degree in developmental psychology and I was thinking, oh, well, I can look at positive developmental trajectories, you know, like how... Um, instead of looking at negative outcomes for kids, we can look at positive outcomes for kids. I mean, by the way, this is like really new <laughs> back then. Right. We don't have to look at negative outcomes. What? Um, but when I got to Columbia, you know, it was what we call in positive psych, we call it business as usual psychology. And it was very much a business as usual psychology program. And I like it really, I didn't have the same kind of passion and love for that work as I did for the positive psychology work. And all of a sudden, like here I am, I just spent, you know, all the, I just got a master's degree in like what makes people happy and thrive and know more than, you know, pretty much the entire world about well-being. And I'm now at Columbia and I'm like all my, the you know, all of a sudden I'm like, feel like I'm crawling through the mud and it's so it's like all I'm hard to motivate myself and I'm like procrastinating or writing papers. I'm like, what is going on? And what I, what I was like so frustrating for me was, okay, I know all of this stuff about how to live better and be happy and thrive and I'm implementing none of it. <laughs> like, uh. <laughs> so then it was like this fascination with, okay, 
this is what we call the neurotic paradox. It's like, I know what I want to do, but I'm not doing it, but I'm doing what I don't want to do. Right. What? So that has a name, the neurotic paradox. Mm -hmm. Mm. That sounds like most of America. (laughs) Yes. Like this is, this is like the fundamental human problem, right? right? Like I, I know that meditation's going, they're going to make me feel better, but I'm not going to do it. I know that exercise, you know, has myriad benefits, cognitive, hormonal, you know, not just to mention the like health and, you know, cardiovascular benefits and I don't do it. And I choose to have a glass of wine or like sit and watch TV instead. Right. We all understand this problem. Right. So then my, in, then I sort of became way more interested in, okay, I, I mean, I can like dig deep on theory and get interested in the theoretical stuff, but then it became about, well, theory is great, but then how do we get people to actually change their behavior? Because what, pe- what people are suffering because of what they're doing. Right. Or not doing, right? Or not doing, right? So how do you help people really make permanent change? And, you know, then really what that's all about is mindset. You can't make all lasting change, all of it, is an expression of a mindset change. Hmm. And that's like new and novel in psychology? No, I don't know that it would say that it's new and novel necessarily. But, um, I mean, I think that, you know... Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis would disagree, but, um, but it definitely wasn't mainstream. And I think Mm -hmm. people are beginning to understand now, like it's not just, and this is what I think is so fun about this work. It's not just about cleaning up the irrational thinking that makes you suffer. Then it becomes about, wait a minute, if I can think on purpose to suffer less, I can also think on purpose to go after my dreams. Right. The manifesting component. Yes. And that's when this, like, this whole experience becomes so much more fun. So it's like, I'm not just managing my mind so that I don't, you know, I'm not miserable and I'm not walking around <laughs> like an anxious, yeah. you know, I mean, that anxiety, that's my jam, right? So it's like, I'm like walking around like in, like a buzzing human being all day. So I can manage my mind so I'm not feeling that. I'm, my nervous system is more mellow and I feel better. But I can also manage my mind to achieve the things I want to achieve, to challenge myself, to blow my mind. Like, you know, and I, which is so why it's so inspiring when someone like you does an Ironman, right? Mm-hmm. Like you had to yeah, blow your mindset. mind to get, to get there. I try and explain, I, I did a little workshop this past weekend in Boston, and one of the things I wanted to tell them about my first Ironman, where I was 205 pounds and mostly fat, but I had, I had put in the training, the physical training, I had done the miles, but what got me to the finish line was the fact that I had for months been able to picture myself crossing the finish line. Like it was just Mm -hmm. part of my everyday practice. When I was out riding my bike for six and seven hours, I just would watch that reel on repeat because I knew that I had, this was Coeur d'Alene. I knew I had a seven block run 
to the finish line and I would just play those seven blocks in my head over and over and over again. And so when I set out on race morning, I was like, well, it's going to take me about 17 hours, but then I'll get those seven blocks. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, right. To, but that to, was it. Yeah. Mindset. Yeah. To my brain, that sounds crazy. Terrible. No, it's just like, it seems like my brain cannot compute, right? It seems impossible to me. But you know, what's impossible to me is like not eating the cookies in the pantry. Well, right. And, (laughs) but but that's exactly right. It's like that. It's but this is, that's what's so fun about this work is that mental fitness, like rinse and repeat. If I can blow my mind and have a day where I think I'll never be normal Again, I will always be obsessed with food. It's just going to be the soundtrack in the back of my head for the rest of my life. And then a year and a half later, have a moment where I pick my head up from something and I think, oh my God, I haven't thought about food for three hours. Yeah. Right? My mind exploded. And the same... the same thing happens when you cross the finish line in Ironman, like something that seemed totally impossible, which to my brain seems totally impossible. I'm like, I did a Nordic ski race for two hours and I almost died. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, that sounds scary. 17 hours. I'm like, Oh my God. But right. Like you do something that's totally impossible. That seems impossible when you, the first time you went to a spinning class, doing a 17 hour Ironman was impossible. Right. Totally. That spinning class was impossible. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so when you begin to see like, oh, if I can do it in this area, then where else can I do it? Right. Then life becomes much more fun. It's like, and that's kind of the hang up I'm I'm on now because I'm doing this like bodybuilding journey because I'm so hung up on my body and you know, it's mindset again, like I once and for all want to stop having these ridiculous conversations in my head, which go to the tune of, I will always be fat. I will be fat forever. Um, I cannot change my body. I could never possibly look like any of those fitness people. So I'll just go eat the cookies. And I am so sick of that mindset that I am doing this drastic thing. I love it. Mindset. And so I've, taken a lot of heat from it because people want me to be body positive oh be whatever size and I'm like cool and I still am that way um do what be whatever size you want to be and I, okay so here's the something about the body pos- positive stuff that I think is interesting you're allowed to be body positive but you're not allowed to be body body positive if and you <laughs> as you're trying to get more fit right like it makes no sense to me right like it's- how about you just love your body all the time. It's a really weird thing. It's a really weird thing that the whole, and, and I think the people that are truly body positive don't have a problem with it. They see that it, it really is a state of mind that it's you, when you're comfortable in your own skin, you've reached it. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, but I think it's cool. Like I, I think it's awesome to challenge your body to see what your body is capable of. Like, like to me, it's no different than Iron Man. No, because it's the same thing. I, you know, I watch people all the time change their bodies and do amazing things with their bodies. And to me, it's no different than, well, I watch people, you know, climb the mountains of Coeur d'Alene and finish that race. Why, you know, th- this is just another mountain for me, but it's one that has been so insidious and dark. You know what I mean? So- By the way, if a guy was trying, was, was doing exactly what you're doing and was bodybuilding 
no for a challenge, <laughs> everybody would celebrate it. No, it's just right. true. It'd be and like I am, and I don't mean to say a lot of. I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback, and you know, my my whole goal is just to always show people what is possible, and then that's your goal too, right? I mean. So, by the way, one technique that you can use is, I love that you said it, this is the tune in my head. So one technique you can use, it sounds completely insane, but it does work, is that little ditty in your head, which is, I will, what is it? I'll always be fat. This is always going to be a struggle. I've always been fat. This is my life. Yeah. Okay. So you can write that down. Those are the lyrics. This is your song. And every time you hear your brain going there, you just sing it. To the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy or Happy Birthday. Just just sing the words or mm-hmm. sing the tune? Or do I sing the mean words to the tune? Yeah, sing why the mean words. Because it because makes it sound silly. makes it sound silly. And this is what we call, it's a diffusing technique. But like those thoughts oh. are so fused to you, you just can't see them. You see them as part of your identity. They're yeah. fused to yourself. They're just thoughts. They're literally like yeah. meaningless words with punctuation in your brain that you've decided to pick up so a long think, time ago. Do you think there's an importance in diffusing the negative words versus trying to scream positive ones louder on top of them? A hundred percent. Like don't even, don't even bother with screaming the positive ones on top of them yet. Huh? That's really interesting. Cause I like, I'm, I was doing this gratitude journaling where, and, and it's been really helpful. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for my gratitude journal. Um, but you know, I had to come up with these manifestations. And one of them was I am have a fit hot body. <laughs> I would say that, but that would be the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy. I have a fit hot body. You know, that's right. hard to say. Right. Well, no, because it's, you don't believe it yet. Yeah, right? right. And so you need to bridge your way to those thoughts. Like the reason that positive affirmations don't work for people is because they only work if they create emotional resonance with you. The reason that you know, I'm fat. I'll always be fat. It's always going to be a struggle is it's like that. It feels right to you. Right. Right. And it, it, it creates strong emotion in you. But when you are saying words that are just like, you know, I'm, you know, my body's beautiful. I love my body. And if you don't believe it, then it doesn't create the reason why our, the reason that our thoughts matter because thoughts are I mean, not truly thoughts are all made up. They're just punctuation, like literally words with punctuation in your brain. They're all subjective opinion. Mm -hmm. The only reason that your thoughts matter is because they create an emotion and it's our emotions that motivate our actions. Right? So the reason that we want to manage our thinking is to ultimately manage our emotional life. Right. Right. So when you're those, when you're saying that to yourself, it makes you feel terrible yeah. and defeated, right? And hopeless. And when you're feeling defeated and hopeless, you're like, mm, cookie sounds delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go to that cookie jar. Right. I mean, this is my whole problem with the idea of self-love and self-care that like sticks mm-hmm. in my craw because, and I wrote, I have a whole chapter about this in the book I have coming out in December, but it's just when people tell people that are so 
self-sabotaging and you've harmed themselves their entire lives well you should just love yourself or maybe you should just like do some self-care like I find that to be the most destructive advice because if you are the type of person who has hated yourself for so long Mm -hmm. to just tell you someone just to tell yourself oh I'm going to start loving you that is not how it works there I fundamentally believe and this is based on nothing but my own like gut um, is that you have to have an action before you can have a of a a belief like that and maybe that's not true but for me I had to mine started with exercise I had to act before I could start to believe and before I could start to even embark on self-love totally I mean I I think you can do them simultaneously but you have to do that consciously so and it may be too hard for some people right I mean yes some some people are like you tell me to love myself you tell me to, I need to be better at self-care. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's like you're speaking another language. They don't even have a reference for what you're describing. Right. Because they've been so vicious to themselves their entire life. They don't remember a time when they weren't vicious with themselves. I mean, I always tell the story about how I never lotioned from my neck to my, like, upper thighs. I would lotion, like, the bottom of my legs and my arms. But like the whole middle area, <laughs> You're like, Let's I just, just wouldn't freaking touch it, you know, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. um, and that was the first real step of self-care for me was when I lo- like just slathered lotion on my entire body. And some people are like, ooh, when I tell that story, but that's what it was for me. If someone had said, you need to go lotion your stomach right now, I'd have been like, you can just go to hell. <laughs> right. I'm not touching it. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I, sometimes I think, you know, Honestly, well-being is really about liking who you are, liking yourself. And sometimes I think the concept of self-love is way too esoteric for people. And it can maybe sometimes feel more grounding. Like, okay, if you liked yourself, like if you like a friend, how would you treat that friend? That can maybe be a little easier to figure out. Like I, you know, I, I wouldn't, or would I use those words against somebody else? But no, our inner dialogue is when these thoughts are so fused to you, then the work, the first step is just giving yourself like a little bit of, you know, an inch away from you. So you can begin to see just a little bit how, okay, now I I see that it's a thought. It's not, it's not a fact about who I am. It's a thought about who I am. So, you know, the first step was I'm thinking the thought that I'm fat. Right. Right. It's, which is, it sounds so, I mean, it's semantics, but it makes a huge difference when you're realizing like, oh, I'm thinking this is a thought that I'm thinking. This isn't actually a fact about who I am. And like when you're doing singing, it's like you want to be, you know, making it silly because what you want to be doing is recognizing like, oh, this is just some voice that's in my head. It's not necessarily true. Like it just sounds absurd when you sing it and to the tune of happy birthday. It starts to sound ridiculous. Yeah. Right. When you're like saying I'm lazy or, you know, you're like whatever the whatever your the light motif is in the back of your head when you start to do different diffusing techniques, you can sing it in, um, you can sing it to those tunes. You can say those same words in like a, in a voice of a particular character that seems kind of funny or silly in your head. Um, like anything that's good to use with kids sometimes, but like anything that helps you detach it from you. 
That's great. That's such, that's such helpful advice. <laughs> but I do really think is. like it's a big, I think it can be a mistake to try to go to something. It's too far. Like the positive thought is too far away from you right now. So you're not believing it. So then you're just going to work like you're going to build the bridge the way there. It's like you're not going to be a triathlete on day. I mean, you're not going to be I mean, a triathlete, let alone an Ironman on day one. You know, you're going to have to train your way there. The same is true with your thoughts. Right. But when it comes to our mental fitness, we're like, yeah, it was supposed to happen yesterday. No, like you're not going to get physically fit tomorrow. It's going to take time. In the same way for you to shift your mindset, you're going to have to do just as you do with your body, deliberate practice every darn day, every day, right? And so you help people do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same. And and this, which is so funny to me, it's like we spent all of this time like training our, our body and our physical fitness, but when we blow off the mental part of it. And that's so much of it. It's like, but it's so like 90% it. of it yeah. is your brain. Like your whole journey as a triathlete, I mean, which is so cool. Like it started with a thought. It was a thought. I'm going to be a triathlete. And I tell all my athletes, like this whole situation is 90% mental. I mean, yeah. you have to do the work, but you can really get by on very little work if, you, if, if you're really mentally strong. Like if your goal is to finish, like, I mean, if you want to race the world championships, no, you, you got to really have them all dialed in. But um, to, to do triathlon, to finish, to cross finish lines is 90% mental. Totally. So, you know, you like work your way there mentally. Day one, you're not like, I'm an amazing athlete. I'm super fit. No, you don't believe any of that. But you can start with one day I'm going to cross the finish line. It's possible I could cross the finish line. Right. Maybe I would like to cross the finish line. Maybe I would like to cross the finish line, right? Like (laughs) one day running a half a mile will be easy. Right? Like that feels way too far away from you yeah, when you're yeah. first starting. So you got to bridge your way there. And that's, and that's why I think where all this sort of like positive, the think positive movement and the affirmation movement, that's where I think it goes awry is that it's just asking, you know, it's like asking an amateur, you know, a, a for a person who just walked into the gym for the first time in 20 years to run a race. It's just not realistic, right? You got to have some patience with yourself. And and then the work is consistently building that bridge. So you're building one thought to the next, to the next, to the next, right? Like, what would I need? What do I need to believe to get myself to the gym? What do I need to believe to get myself to do five minutes on the treadmill? Like, that's, that's the work. Yeah. The baby steps. Mm-hmm. The what about Bob steps, baby steps to the bus, <laughs> baby steps to the... Exactly. Every good psychologist loves what about Bob. <laughs> exactly. Right? Well, we have talked for a long time. Oh my gosh. I feel like there's so much more too. Oh. We may have to do a two-parter. I mean, I have, I could, I need to enter, I want to interview you about all of your racing because I was super inspired. I, I have to tell you, I took my daughter swimming this weekend because I was whinging in my head because my daughter and I spent the day together. My husband was away with my son and I was totally whining in my head like, I can't work out because she's five and she doesn't want to sit and wait for me at the gym and I can't go Nordic skiing because, you know, what am I going to do with my daughter? And I just was like, oh my gosh, woman, you've been reading this book. Come on. <laughs> And so I was like, be creative. So I said to my daughter, I was like, do you want to go swimming? 
And of course she said yes. So she played in the lane next to me and I did laps for the first time in like three years. Oh my gosh. So you inspired me. No, it's That's great. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> I know. And the kids, you know, your daughter being five, they're, she's watching everything and that she'll remember that. She will yes, remember like, you doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And like I do this, I mean, seriously, I do this for a living. I've been doing this for a long time, since 2005, and my whining game is strong. <laughs> it's good to know that you too whine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just better at, you know, shutting her down. Yeah. I've gotten and, and better at shutting is. her down. I mean, I started, you mentioned meditating earlier. I'm on like day 35 of meditating, oh, which bravo. is, a, if you know me, that is a huge step. Like, that's, that's the awesome. biggest hurdle I've hurdled in my life. And I whine about it. Like I have to meditate when we get off this call in like 30 minutes because I have a standing appointment and I'm not happy about it, but I'm at the point. You get to meditate. That's your, that's your mental shift today. Instead of I have to, I get to, I get get to to, and it's just like everything else. I want all the benefits. And so I'm going to do the action. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) End of story. Love it. Well, one more question for you. So yeah. This podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, which means that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do with those 24 hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. So what is something that you do on a daily basis that you think brings you a little bit closer to those those goals and your your greatest health, happiness, and success? A daily practice, perhaps. Every day I do models. And what I mean by that is I, when I'm feeling crummy, which happens every day at some point, like anxiety or dread or whatever, right? I do a model, which means I'm writing down what's the emotion, what's the thought that's creating my emotion, right? So the thought creates my emotion. I'm writing that down. And then I look at my emotion, whatever it is, let's say it's anxiety, just, you know, because that's my thing. Mm-hmm. So, and then I look at what's the anxiety creating, what's the action that that anxiety is creating, and what's the outcome. I write this down and I just look at it, right? Is this, is this thought that I'm thinking creating the outcome that I want today? Oh, wow. Right? If it is not, then we re- rework the model. Like, what's the outcome I want? And I work it backwards. What's the thought I need to practice to get the outcome I want? It takes five minutes. Less than five minutes. I've read that somewhere, and I think I put that in the jar with meditation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Instead, I'm not doing that. But I think right. of it, to me, it's an act of meditation because yeah. it's just a practice of mindfulness. Like the reason that we man- – the reason that you put your thoughts on paper, like when you're journaling or anything, like the reason you put your thought on paper is so that you can consciously look at it, right? It's an act of mindfulness. So it's not just unconsciously floating around. You're actually looking at it. Right. Objectively. Right. So it's, it is an act of, it is an act of mindfulness. That's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This was great. And I will post all the links to all your places on the interwebs. Awesome. (laughs) And we'll definitely stay in touch. Love it. So great to talk to you. 